You're listening to Lane Powell Live, www.lanepowell.com. It wouldn't be a legal presentation if we didn't include a disclaimer. We want to note that the information provided in this podcast does not and is not intended to constitute legal advice. All information, content, and materials available today are for general informational purposes only. Legislation and regulations are always subject to change, so we recommend that you always check with your legal counsel to ensure that any advice you receive is current. You'll find our full disclaimer at our website, lanepowell.com. Thank you for joining us today. You're on the ground, and um, I take it you did they, they give you a gate to taxi to, or they give you, or you went to some holding point and right. uh, just stopped the airplane, shut it down. Um, we told them we were going to roll to the end of the runway and taxi off on the hard stand. Could they send? Now, as as we were touching down, there were so many fire trucks at that airport. I don't think the city of Los Angeles has that many. <laughs> fire truck. I mean, they were everywhere. So I had asked them, could they have the fire trucks come up to the aircraft and assess the cargo hold from the aft right-hand side of the airplane and inform us if we have any uh, distortions or signs of smoke or anything like that. So we turned off and I left the engines running. And um, John Walkman saw the, the truck go around the front to the you can't see the back of the airplane, but that's where they were going. And finally, uh, from the tower, they said, uh, we observe no smoke or heat or whatever. I said, Roger. And then um, I asked them if they still had the people movers. Now, um, that's what they call them in Iran, the people movers. They were the buses. They didn't have enough jetways at the time, so they'd move people with buses out to the airplane. From the terminal to the airplane yeah. and, and, and vice said, versa. Yes, Captain. I said, could you send us buses for 250 people? They go, yes, Captain. So I kept the engines running. and, I, and Why I said, did you keep the engines running? Because they couldn't get near the airplane with the engines running. I mean, that was how stupid that was to think, but that was my But theory. there was a little bit of a defense shield there. To, yeah. You know, they were I not going to come near right. the airplane, not near the running away engines. until I had a plan. Right, right, yeah. Because <laughs> we needed a plan desperately mm -hmm. at that point. Yeah. So um, I asked uh, John to try to get a hold of the company again. Now, in the meantime, the engineer had been trying desperately to get the company. And I remember, he said, Bo, I have the company. Let's get on HF, okay? So I listened and I said, uh, we know you're in Tehran. This is an international incident. We have no support in Tehran. And for now, you're on your own. And we heard those words. Kind of like, we know you're there. Good luck. And that's when I got scared. So remind us a little bit of the, like, kind of the, 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 the context here. Again, A, the company policy was don't, don't land. land there. Um, we've got the, the Iraq war yep. is going on, um, and the relationship between the U.S. and Iran. Has been hostile for a number of years. It just so turned out that 
This was the first American airplane, American airline, not maybe not airplane, but American airline to land in Tehran in 26 years. So you've got all that, you know, US flag carrier, you've got a diverse group of people on board and no idea what kind of response you're gonna get past now you've had the fire truck come out and say, we don't, exactly. we don't see anything. We learned there was no fire and of course now what goes through your mind is, oh God, I, di I diverted for a false warning because you question yourself and you question the decisions you've made because this, has, this could have really bad implications for our country, for other countries, mm -hmm. right? Because they had 241 hostages plus a crew of seven. Right, right, right. right. Available to them. So that kind of went through, I mean, when I say went through my mind, it, there are so many thoughts moving around. It's, sure. You know, you're trying to push those thoughts out so that you have time to to deal with the here and the now, but they're still there. Right, absolutely. And and you've been clearly told by your company that you're on your own. Yes. Figure it out. I don't believe the dispatcher at the time really understood what those words would have meant to us. He probably was just as frustrated because he didn't know what to do either. I would never fault him or anybody else for saying that. Of course. Uh, they were probably really frustrated. Yeah. Okay. So you're you're on the ground with no company support, <laughs> no U.S. government, State Department support. Correct. In a hostile country, with 241 passengers and seven crew, on a DC-10, sitting on a ramp, with your engines running. There we were. Was there anything that, about that you recognized, or maybe one of the crew or something identified about? the mood, the atmosphere, the feeling of the passengers, did they realize the magnitude of the moment? Well, I'm sure they did, um, but I didn't personally have any interaction with them. I, my interaction was primarily with the um, purser and a few of the flight attendants, and they were organized. So I think when they got off, what, what I did notice was there, there wasn't any pushing or shoving of people. It was extremely organized and calm. So the fact that there were buses there and they knew they were being taken care of um, probably would indicate that they were okay with it. I do know at the terminal, one of the biggest mistakes I made, and I, I made mistakes, and one of the biggest ones was I didn't stay in contact with the purser because I learned later that he was desperately trying to find out what's going on. And having no information is worse sometimes than the wrong information, believe it or not. To be done over again, I would have done that. But I, I was so intent and focused on getting the airplane ready to get out of there to open up the opportunity for the people to get back on. Um, that's one thing I really needed to do better. And that, that speaks to the value of good, clear communication, right? Trying sure. to trying to <laughs> communicate, ensure that people are well informed, or at least as best right. informed as you can possibly make them, recognizing that there's there's some some limitations, certainly some limitations exactly. here. Exactly. And you know, I learned a lot working in the corporate world that I didn't know working in the airline world. It's a different culture, and. In the corporate world, communication is everything. 
I mean, that car better be by the airplane when you get there, right? The F FBO better be ready for a quick turn. Um, and that's all your planning. And the expectation, the bar is high, right? The, the, the expectation is everything goes perfectly. Exactly. If it goes perfectly, you did your job. Now you know that you don't have a problem. Now we know it was a false so, one. Yep. So <clears throat> what's your next thought? You're asking for people movers. What happens next? What, what are you thinking you've got to get well, off the ground as soon as possible? How are you going to accomplish maintenance? The, the biggest issue at that point was crowd control. With 241 people on the airplane, there's only so many lavatories. Iran, it's the middle of the summer. Iran is hot. I know that. What time of day is it? It's 4.30 in the morning. The, when you when landed, when you touched down. Yeah, yeah, so this is probably... Not long after that? Five, not long yeah. after that. Okay. So that's kind of went through my mind. I've got to separate the problems. There are too many problems. So it, I, I tried to think of compartmentalizing each as a separate issue. So we had the maintenance. We needed fuel. We needed uh, inspection of the cargo. I've got 36,000 pounds of cargo that somehow has to get to Amsterdam. And I've got 241 people. Who's going to feed them? Where are they going to go? The first thing was to start eliminating the problems. Now, I'm not saying the people were a problem. I'm saying that if they stayed on the airplane, it would be a problem. But if they get off the airplane, that also might could be, a, be problem. a problem. It Yes, <laughs> it could. Like you said, they've got 241 potential hostages here. Yes, they do. Right. What is the most important thing to me at that point? And that was, how do I get the airplane out of here with the people? If I can't get the airplane going, they've got everybody. Mm -hmm. So um, I asked them if they could take the people to the, to the terminal. And Jerry Maguire, as a matter of fact, he came up in the cockpit and I explained to him what we're doing. They had already taken all the food out of the galley. They had it in um, plastic bags. They took the drinks. I asked them to hide the liquor. Mm -hmm. So, you know, because you're in a, yeah. a Muslim country, yeah. right? Yeah. Uh, not to take liquor off the airplane, just, you know, find a place to put it where it's mm -hmm. not visible. And uh, he did. He was, he was fabby. He had, every, they had everything organized. And the people movers got there. The people um, went down the, the stairs that they had in an orderly fashion. There was no panic. Uh, it went smooth as clockwork. At that point, when the people were off, a fellow came up in the cockpit. And I remembered from my days in Iran that the ground staff wear uniforms like the piloting staff, except their stripes are silver and the flight crew are gold. So a gentleman walked in the cockpit and he had four stripes, so I knew he was head of ground operations there. So when he walked in the the cockpit, I turned and greeted him in Farsi. And his eyeballs, he couldn't believe it. He was almost speechless for a second. And he goes, Captain, how you know Farsi? <laughs> I had to laugh. Uh, I explained to him that I was Iran Air pilot from many, many years ago when he was a little fellow. And uh, so that, that kind of... Um, made a bond, was able to make an immediate mental contact with this individual so we had something in common. I, I probably left out that uh, just prior to him coming, them coming on the airplane, I told my crew, I said, and I told Jerry too, I said, look, 
This is a different culture. Things happen in Iran in a totally different way than you're used to. They will do things that to you are absolutely crazy in the way they do it. I said, but it's their way of doing it. And in the end, it always works out. And then I divided the problems in the sense that I told uh, the engineer, Chase, I said, Chase, you're going to handle the mechanical. Everything mechanical with the airplane, it's your deal. And John, your communications, you get us and keep us on the outside world so we have some line of communication. And keep me posted of what they want. And Chase, you keep me posted of any mechanical problems you have. I'll handle the politics. And then the three of us can work this thing. Um, we just knock down whatever problem comes up. We just knock them down one at a time. And the main goal is, how do we get out? Get the airplane fixed. That's all we're going to concentrate on. Whether or not they let us go is a separate issue. We don't care. We want the airplane capable of going first. That's fantastic. You prioritize what needs to be done. You're aware of the, the, the bigger picture here, the political circumstances right. and all the things that you've described. But you're recognizing in the moment that you're interacting with people, with people on the ground that can help you. So long as you're respectful of them, that's the approach. And uh, you've developed a, a relationship very quickly um, by knowing some of the things you knew from being there. But, but even if you didn't, just demonstrating some fundamental respect for somebody that you're working with um, and figuring out how you can right. kind of keep things moving. Adapting to the instantaneous culture shift that you have to deal with here takes you a long way toward getting to your to your goal, and that's that's the way we approached it. Yeah. So you're 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 a troubleshooter, you're a problem solver, you're a diplomat, you're a politician, you're a, you're a people manager. You're ultimately in the end, you're as a captain, um, you're responsible for all of those things, and there's an awful lot there. But fundamentally, you understand the relationship with the people, the cultural differences, not trying to impose your will on somebody else, trying to work within the system that exists and to navigate all these areas to arrive at, uh, at, a, at hopefully at a, at a point where you can, you can depart. Well, that sums it up pretty well. Um, you don't realize you're doing all these things as it's happening. Stress level is, is, I didn't know it until it was all over. I didn't sleep for three days. Adrenaline, the amount of the, Adrenaline that must have been in our bodies was unbelievable because the other two guys they didn't sleep either couldn't sleep yeah. It was like you were on fire for until the adrenaline sort of Drained its way out of your System an area of, of interest to me is the, the area of social capital the idea of networks and uh, and then relational capital that the exchange that uh, that you develop with people within that network um, the relationships you develop within that network and you created one very quickly, internal to the aircraft, external to the aircraft, um, and then so then how did um, how did you then kind of how did you then proceed through um, you know kind of moving through? You got the people off the airplane. You've got some um, maintenance um, coming, presumably. Uh, you've had the fire folks look at the airplane, and uh, so tell us a little bit about. The, how the maintenance kind of went because you had you had the the ground operations um, supervisor or leader or whatever he was called that's who your initial interchange was with right it was and then, and then you had to kind of address all these other things I was so focused 
on the first task of getting the airplane ready to go. I didn't want to have to stay there, right? I took a company asset into a hostile environment. It's real funny because when we got to the bar after all this happened, as we walk and everybody started applauding and cheering and somebody shouted out, this proves even the Iranians don't want a DC-10. <laughs> <laughs> I laughed so hard. <laughs> That's funny. The whole thing erupted. That yeah, is it funny. Was, it yeah. was funny. What so, bar did you end up in? Where was it? It was yeah. in the NH in, uh, across the river. There's one that sits out there in a little town. I can't remember the name of it. It's kind of, I can't say it's isolated. You have to walk quite a ways down to the, there's a ferry that goes across to get into Amsterdam. But yeah, it's a really nice hotel. So Bo, even in the middle of the stress, and like you said, that tunnel vision focus, you still had the presence of mind to use the assets you had, which were your crew, the people on your team, right? Your wingmen, you divided out those responsibilities. <clears throat> so even though you were in that tunnel of stress, your training took over. So how did you continue to use them as you faced your next challenge, which was getting that plane out? I divided the tasks on a, on a higher level. In other words, maintenance, you're going to be communications, I'm going to be politics. So that kind of set the overall umbrella. Then I let them go because <clears throat> I realized that when you give people tasks and you're a higher level position, you need to let people figure out how to do it on their own. You have to understand and accept that the process they use for getting it done may not be the way you would do it, but you need to leave them alone. Only if they make a mistake or if they need help do you interject, okay? And you, you are very careful on how you correct a mistake, right? You can't be accusatory. You go in with a question. Hmm, you think that's going to work? Okay, well, I'm not really sure, blah, blah, blah. Huh, I wonder what would happen if we tried that. In getting along with people, you have to allow them to come to their own conclusion. If you don't, you take away their pride, you take away their, their self-motivation. Um, so when I gave Chase a maintenance, now I work for Chase, right? And I gave John communications, I'm working for John. That's, that's how I handle things. So what did Chase get figured out for the maintenance? Well, the first, the first issue we had, he had to come to me, he said, Bo, we got a problem. I said, what's that? He says, we can't open the cargo door. I said, why not? He says, come on out here. So we went out and we ran up the belt loader. All the directions for operating the cargo door are, are on the gone. inside. No, they're gone. They're all worn off. Oh. <laughs> so, I mean, there's about three switches and buttons and everything. You don't want to start pushing things and jam it so it doesn't get open. So we're looking at that and I said, God, what are we going to do, Chase? He says, well, maybe there's a page in the manual. Yep, good idea. So he goes in, he looks through the manual, and it's the only page that's missing. Isn't that how things work? It's the only page that's missing. So he had the presence of mind to slowly go through the manual, page by page, in that section of the manual, it was in the wrong place. Right? He could have just said, it's not in the manual. And then we could have, 
then tried to do it and jam it. But he didn't do that. He took the time to go back, think it through, went through every page and found the right page and he brought it out and we got it open. So people are ingenious. I mean, if you let them think through a problem, in most cases, they'll come up with a solution. You just have to be patient and, and then let them do it. So that, that's how we did that. The other thing was we had to have an inspection before we left because we had blown all the bottles. Now, you can't carry cargo in a compartment that has no fire protection. So if we did leave, we couldn't leave with any cargo. So we had 36,000 pounds of baggage and freight. We had to get that somehow to Amsterdam. So that created another problem. By the solution of one problem, it creates a different problem. What I did was I went to the force driver and I said, Captain, we have a problem. And he goes, Captain, what's the problem? I said, I have 36,000 pounds of cargo and baggage here. I can't carry it on the airplane, correct? He said, oh, no, Captain, you have no extinguisher. I said, okay, can you help me? Well, Captain, uh, how can we help? I said, do you think Iran Air could possibly take our cargo and baggage to Amsterdam? Would that be possible? He said, I don't know, Captain, but I will ask. I said, okay. And a little while later, he came back and said, Captain, we have decided we're going to help you and we're going to move the the cargo and the baggage to Amsterdam, it will leave on a flight at 4 p.m. today. I said, oh, thank you so much. You just solved a huge problem for me. It's no problem, Captain. They're just people, right? Mm -hmm. And when you're dealing with people, if you treat them as good people, they're going to do everything they can to help you, right? Certain things you can't control, but you work with the things that you can control, right? And that's how that and you couldn't yeah. control that there likely wasn't anyone that worked on a DC-10 in uh, well, that was Tehran at that point. So <clears throat> how did you get the maintenance well, checked the, off? Well, the, the captain brought me a maintenance fellow, and I explained to him, I said, uh, we have to have inspection on our airplane part of departure. He goes, Captain, I'm, I'm not DC-10. I, hmm. I said, well... You see, in their country, like pilots that have type ratings, their mechanics have type ratings. So I asked him, I said, do you have type ratings in, in many airplanes you work on? He goes, oh, yes, Captain. I said, could I see your, may I see your license? Oh, yes, Captain. Of course, he wants to show me his license, right? Shows it to me, and I look down here. He's worked on the British Trident. I said, uh, oh, God, you've worked on the Trident. He said, oh, yes, Captain. Very complicated airplane. I said, yes. So many cables and pulleys and, oh, yes, Captain, it's the British way. I said, yes. I said, that's like the British way, too. He goes, really? I said, yeah, it's just the same. He said, I will look. So he goes and looks. And a little while later, he comes back and says, Captain, I see no problem. So I went to John, and I said, John, we've had a mechanic inspect the cargo area and has determined that there's no issue with proceeding further, but we have to have it signed off. So can you figure out a way to get that done? He said, I'll work on that. So a little while later, he came and said, Bo, we got it worked out. I said, what's that? He said, the FAA just gave us special dispensation to sign off. We sign off the maintenance based on the report of this guy. That's how we did it. 
Wow. So we didn't break the rule. The wonderful people in Minneapolis got a permission to let us sign the maintenance log, and that's how we solved that issue. So a little that's bit fantastic. of support from our friendly aviation agency <clears throat> in that instance. <laughs> <laughs> yes. And then for getting the passengers back on board the aircraft bow and answering the Iranian government's question to yes. you for publicity, <clears throat> how did you deal with those well, two? At one point, we were getting close to going. Um, we'd worked out the fuel situation and, and we got the fuel in the airplane enough to get the answer to them. Of course, we also considered that we could go someplace other than Amsterdam, but it would rather go right to Amsterdam because, you know, we got 241 people that want to get home. And you've you got the luggage. Yeah, yeah, the luggage. Yeah, the luggage is going there. Oh, and the blue... enough fun for one day. Yeah, yeah. Right? and the blue box, <laughs> but we'll talk about that okay. later. So about 6 in the morning, we started seeing a different crowd of people showing up. And there were more suits, people with suits, and they would be talking. And I started noticing this. That's when I got a little bit apprehensive because I knew something was going on. Uh, I happened to be in the cabin. Iran Air insisted that they clean the airplane for us. And I explained, no, please, sir, you don't. They, they cleaned that airplane better than Northwest ever cleaned an airplane. It was the cleanest DC-10 I'd ever been on. They did a fabulous job. But at one point, uh, a fellow, um, one of the leaders here came up and says, Captain, uh, he says, uh, could, could you come outside, please? I said, okay, sure, what is the problem? He says, no, you come. Okay, so I walked outside, and down the bottom of the jetway is a crowd of people with, with the news microphones, and I go, oh, no. <clears throat> so before I walk out, he says, Captain, he says, they are going to ask you questions. I said, well, what kind of questions? And he says, well, many questions. I said, no. I said, I'll, I will answer three questions. What three questions do you want to hear about? He said, well, Captain. Now, he worked for air traffic control. He says, okay. He says, three questions. I will translate. I said, fine. He said, um, okay, why did you come to Tehran? Number two, how were you treated yeah. in Iran? And I said, the Persian people are well known for their hospitality. I said, over the years, there are many attempted conquerors of Persia, but in most cases, those conquerors were won over by the Persian people. I said, we have been treated incredibly well, and we're extremely appreciative of the hospitality that we've been shown here. But the third question at any point, he says, uh, and Captain, he says, uh, could you say something good about air traffic control? And I'm going, here's my opportunity, right? So we go down the jetway, and they have the news uh, anchor man there, and he's talking to the uh, fellow that I'm working with here. And he says to me, he says, Captain, we want to know why you came to Tehran. I said, well, I said, uh, we came to Tehran because we had an in-flight emergency. We had what was indicated to us as a fire in a cargo compartment. And we were very close to Tehran, but we were far away from other locations where we could have landed. And the Iranian people were so very gracious at allowing us 
to land in their country in an emergency. And they have been so good to us during our stay here. We want to thank all of the Iranian people for the hospitality that Persians are known for in the Middle East. Oh, they really like that. I would like everyone to know that when a pilot has an emergency, no matter what country he is from, it's irrelevant. He's a pilot. And controllers and pilots have a special bond that they protect each other. And the Iranian controllers are the best in the world. And they did everything they could to keep us safe. They did everything they could to get us on the ground uh, swiftly. And had there actually been a fire uh, and we lived, it would only have been because of the Iranian air traffic control. Then we go upstairs, <clears throat> they bring the people. Getting ready to go, a different Iranian gentleman comes up and says, Captain, uh, we need three people. And I'm going, why do you need three people? He says, no, Captain, we need three people. I said, no, sir, we can't have only three people. We, you can have 241 people plus crew, but you can't have three people. He said, no, Captain, no, Captain, you don't understand. I said, okay, uh, help me. He said, we just want three people to talk to our press. I said, okay, excuse me, give me a minute. And I thought about that and I went, okay, what's going to happen here? Are they going to take them hostage? Are they um, going to get people to admit that were a load of spies and we came in here for the wrong reason. I didn't know. So I thought, okay, <clears throat> I'll go down on the stairs with them and I'll select people that I, I feel um, probably would be good Americans, right? So I went to first class and I explained to people what was going to happen. And I told them that most likely you're going to be asked how you were treated by the Iranian people. And if you sincerely feel you were treated well, I want you to raise your hand and volunteer. If you feel as though there were any issues, please don't raise your hand, no problem. So everybody in the cabin raised their hand. So I picked an older couple, uh, probably in their 70s, and a young girl about, well, she must have been about 15 or 16. So I had them go down, that's exactly what they did. How are you treated in Iran? How do you like Iran? What do you think of the Iranian people? And they were very gracious in their responses. And we go back up the jetway, the stairs pulls away, and I remember looking at John Walkman and Chase Osborne, and I said, guys, I think we're getting out of here. They go, we don't believe it, we're gonna leave. I said, yeah, we're gonna leave. <laughs> So we fired that thing up and... How did you get the fuel? <clears throat> that was the last big How did we get you fuel? to leave. Fuel was a big issue. The problem with getting the fuel um, was payment, number one, and, and trying to sort out some system. We thought about, well, first thing that happened, I asked uh, the ground captain, I said, you know, Captain, we need fuel. How can we arrange for fuel? 
He says, Captain, uh, I will go check. So he comes back and he says, uh, Captain, maybe uh, KLM. Here's a phone number of the KLM representative. And he gave me a phone. So I called the KLM representative and he goes, well, <laughs> he says, you know, Captain, he says, uh, Northwest is flying under our authority. We can't be too friendly to the Americans and I really apologize. I'm in the cockpit during this phone call and I was talking to Chase and uh, John about it. And they said, well, Bill, why don't we take up a collection and we'll pay cash. I said, well, I've got a credit card and I forgot in the Middle East there is no credit. You don't have credit. You can't buy with a credit card. So that wasn't going to work. And I really didn't want to take the cash um, from the passengers to do this. So I asked John to get a hold of the company when he could, tell them we need um, somehow to make payment. Well then, that same guy comes back up to the cockpit and says, Captain, does Northwest Airlines have CETA, S-I-T-A? And that's the international communication system from maybe the 30s through the 50s or 60s. But we had it at Northwest. <laughs> <laughs> I couldn't believe it. I said, yes, we have CETA. He says, uh, okay, Captain. He says, uh, you get me the address of CETA. He said, and we, if your company will send a message via CETA that, uh, that your company will make payment, and if, Captain, you will guarantee that if the company doesn't make payment, you will make payment. I said, absolutely, I'll sign anything you want. And fortunately, the company came through with CETA and got, got authorization to, to buy the fuel. And that's how we got the fuel. It was amazing. But it worked. And you made it safely to Amsterdam and the cargo followed? The cargo got to Amsterdam uh, the next morning. It was all there. Everybody got their luggage. We left there, I think it was about... 10.30, 11.30, something like that. So you're on the ground for five hours? Six and a half six, hours. Six and a half hours. Is there something that you reflect on now that proved really valuable in helping you navigate the session? We talked about the foundation, <laughs> the understanding of interacting with people, being respectful in their culture, and um, developing their relationships. But something that leaders, whether in aviation or not, might consider um, for their own opportunities, for their own professional development and growth. We had a thing in the airline called crew bonding. And it was really interesting from a social aspect. Uh, in the early days, uh, when we do a flying schedule, we do it a month at a time. So you'd fly with the same crew all month. And it was interesting because if you had a group of four or six people, pretty much right on, a routine would start. You know, there'd be somebody be the jokester, somebody would be the really serious, somebody would be somewhere in the middle. But you would all bond together. You start working as a team naturally. As the computer age came, we no longer flew a complete month with one crew. We wound up, every time you got on the airplane, it was a different crew, right? I don't think my last four years or five years of flying back in the uh, early to mid-2000s, I ever flew with the same co-pilot more than 
three times that whole period. <clears throat> so it was all different. But yet the crew bonding would still happen. And what was really interesting was that if you changed one person on that crew, outcomes could be totally different. So in this experience, the practice and, and developed ability to bond with the people that you're dependent upon, you get more than if you're someone that remains isolated and you demand. Mm -hmm. So if you're a manager um, and you have a group of people that you have to look over, you, you bond with the people. And, you know, they too have to have some way of, of seeing you and bonding with you, right? Um, say, for example, just a skill set. You're working with someone that doesn't have a particular skill set. But they're really good at other things. So from a management standpoint, you find people's weaknesses, okay? And sometimes they're, say for example, someone just can't get into the computer world. But when it comes to them going up and being able to win over someone and uh, as a result of that bring you more and more business, mm -hmm. well, I think overlook the computer skills and find somebody else that can help them out, mm -hmm. right? Yet, there, there's the other school, well, if you can't do the job, then I'll get somebody that can. And you go out and look for somebody that has great computer skills, which you may get, but look what you threw out the window, right? You just didn't have that person in the right place. Mm -hmm. Or you didn't support them to, to um, make up for some of their obvious deficiencies, right? That's I, I a develop, recognizing people's skills, their strengths, their weaknesses, right? And, and putting them in a role that, that plays to that. Absolutely. As opposed to trying to force something that, that doesn't work and, you know, getting people, put them on, in the right seat on the bus kind of thing, right? And, exactly uh, what and have doing. everybody all working toward the same goal. You have people that are aligned with your purpose and your mission and what you're trying to accomplish. And maybe it's a matter of they're just not in the right role. So maybe that's not the IT person. Maybe that's your business development or your salesperson. Well, right? that's exactly correct. And, you know, that's the biggest thing in management is, is the ability to recognize, the ability to take a look at this human being mm -hmm. and be able to um, determine where the facets were and then understand that every human has weaknesses. You just have to find out what they are, and then your job is to supplement those with a solution to their problem. Because everybody that has a weakness knows they have a weakness. A lot of times they try to hide it, mm -hmm. right? Because you really want that job, and you don't want them to know. You don't know how to use the computer. But that person can bring you two, three, four hundred thousand dollars worth of business a year just because of their personal skills and Bo, you did such a great job through this whole instance of diverting this aircraft was staying relentlessly focused on the positive. Even hearing you now, you, you don't get diverted by the negative. You thought momentarily, oh shoot, I blew it, I'm on the ground, there wasn't a fire. You followed what you thought were best practices. You got the input you needed to make the best decision you could at the time and then you relentlessly moved forward through this incident to a successful outcome. 
without getting mired in the negativity, focusing on yourself or on your crew. You just kept encouraging, looking for the next positive step. That's what I love about the story. It's a model of the idea of servant leadership. Um, it's the idea, I think, in when you did things like, A, stay positive, stay focused on what you're doing, don't get bogged down by the negative, continue to try to move forward, you're assigning the, you know, gave people responsibilities and then trusted them, empowered them to go do their work um, and supported them in doing that and recognizing that you're all on the same team. There's two kinds of thinkers. There's linear thinkers and there's global thinkers. A linear thinker would be a person, say for example, with an engineering mindset. And they are most comfortable if you had a field of stones and you told them go from A to B and there's a boulder here, a linear thinker will pick out every stone until they get to the boulder and stop, okay? A global thinker will ignore these stones and take a sledgehammer to the boulder right away. And when you're in the training world with flight crews, you, you really notice this distinction. You notice the pilots that are um, definitely step by step by step by step. And if you get them out of their comfort zone, it all falls apart. And they have characteristics. In an airline, a linear thinker will stay in one airplane for 9, 10, 11 years. They don't change often. But when they change, it's very difficult for them to get through training because the way their brain works is they take in tons of data. But that data has to get into alignment, and that takes time. But you have a specific footprint in the training arena. What happened oftentimes, I noticed, uh, I was a training chairman for Northwest, that you'd find guys that flew a particular airplane for nine years they'd get to here and they couldn't do it, okay? And typical instructor comments would be, it, it, it seems like he can't remember anything. He'll do it right this day, do it perfect the next day, and the third day, it's like he never did it. Why? Because their brain is still aligning the information. Now, once it gets aligned, that guy's gonna stay on that airplane for the next 10 or 15 years. Now, you take the global thinker, okay? He's on a Boeing airplane, he looks through the Douglas manual, he goes, oh, I know about that, I know about that, I, know about that. I don't know about this, this is what I'm going to read. So he'll read that, then he gets done that and he goes through the manual, yep, yep, I know I've done that, done that, and he end, oh, I'm going to focus here. Mm -hmm. He'll probably finish his training early, but he has a global mindset. That airplane's not going to satisfy him very long, so he's going to be in the training department the minute he can get off this airplane and do another one. So he costs you more money but it looks like he's costing you less money. He creates training cycles because the global thinker jumps ahead. The linear thinker stays in line. When it comes to pilots and they face problems, it really depends on what their background, you have no idea what your background does to you and how it's gonna help you in the end. Something that, well, I'll give you a good example. My father, who died when I was very young, I don't remember much about him except the few things he would say. Like, son, you can solve any problem. And here's how you do it. No matter what you try, you can do half of it yourself. And through the solution of the first half, you can figure out another 25%, and the last, you hire it out. Yeah, I, I remember him saying that. So, I mean, I was like 13 or 14 
right? Mm -hmm. But that's always been in the back of my mind, okay? So I've never been afraid to try anything, right? I know I'm going to get halfway there just through common sense. And then by getting halfway through, you know you're going to get more. People don't understand how their background sometimes influences their whole thought process and what their it moves their comfort zone. Mm -hmm. And sometimes you've got to get out of that comfort zone and uh, seek some alternative solutions. And you went through this process, you looked at the procedures, you evaluated the things, but then you recognized that you have to start consider all these other things and become uh, a more strategic thinker, a more global thinker as you're outlined, right. as opposed to a more linear thinker. And that's not to say that those different people don't have places in different roles, right? That's another thing I think about recognizing talent and where you can place people, where their value uh, is best served. It's incumbent upon the individual as well to have some self-awareness, understand some of their own strengths and weaknesses, um, get feedback on where they can improve, where there's opportunities for, and then embrace those things and, and, and go from there. Bo, the blue box. What happened to the blue box? Did you ever find out what was in there? When we took off out of Tehran, the DC-10 is a fairly noisy airplane engine-wise. It, it sounds like huge generators right next to your ear. But the applause and the clapping drowned out the sound of the engines. <laughs> it was unbelievable. We had just leveled off at cruise, and we had ACARS. <clears throat> ACARS is a communication system, computer type system, it, we get messages on it. And the first message we got was, what was the disposition of the blue box? And we looked at each other and went, we just spent six and a half hours in Tehran and they wanna know something about a blue box. And so I called Jerry McGuire up. I said, Jerry, you know anything about a blue box? He said, where? I said, well, no, we just got a message that we saw, I've never heard of it. What's the blue box? Right? We sent that back, didn't hear anything. So when we got into uh, Turkey, we finally got, HF was kind of cleared up and we got them. First thing they said, this is dispatch. Uh, do you have a blue box on board? And we went negative. We don't have any cargo. We left all the cargo in Tehran. It's being shipped to Amsterdam. It should be there tomorrow morning. Okay, that's all I heard about. So we got, eventually, when this all thing was done, I got back to Minneapolis, I went to the fleet manager at DC-10, Rob Stewart, and I said, Rob, we had something on the airplane, I'm not sure what it was, but I need to know what we were carrying. He said, what was it? I said, no, they talked about a blue box. He said, okay, I'll, I'll check it out. About two weeks later, he called me. And he said, Bo, I figured out the blue box. I said, what was it? He says, four and a half million dollars worth of gold and diamonds was in that box. I said, did it get to Amsterdam? He said, Every went, everything went where it was supposed to go. That's the other, you know, the other interesting thing about it. In these airplanes, uh, maybe unlike the corporate world and the airline world, you never know what you're carrying. And that, of course, can add to the confusion as to why is something happening. We had value jet, right, with the... Uh, oxygen mm -hmm. canisters that caught fire. We don't know what we're carrying down there. Anyway, the blue box was pretty interesting. My co-pilot said, if I'd have known that, we'd have gone the other way. I, just, I was just <laughs> gonna say, maybe it was better off you didn't know that they had that, right? <laughs> yeah. 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 So, it was great. to wrap things up today, I'd like to end 
just reiterate a few of the traits that you exude. You're humble and you're gracious and from my short time knowing you both, just professionally and collegially, you're relentlessly focused on doing what is right. You're a great example of what it means to be a servant leader, and I know you do that in your training, and you still do that in your flying. I know that you're modest about an event that could have turned out a lot differently, not just for you, but for Northwest Airlines, for almost 250 souls, and really for our country but for your leadership skills that you've developed over a lifetime to that point, your cultural awareness and savvy that was amazingly, almost miraculously provided to you <laughs> early on in your career and your deft handling of a very delicate situation, your commitment to your role, to safety and to well-being of your passengers and crew is a model for all of us, whether we work in aviation or in other arenas, to look out for our co colleagues and our wingmen as we go through life. I know you're still an active aviator and a contributor to our Pacific Northwest aviation community, and we thank you for that. And if listeners would like to hear more about this experience, we're going to provide a link so that you can hear another excellent podcast where you give a little more ex um, wider, expanded version on this experience in Tehran. We'll provide that. And also, I know that you still do some training, and we'd like to get that information into folks' hands as well. So thanks for being with us today. Any last words, John? It's been an absolute pleasure, Bo. And this, this everything that you've shared, I think, is of, of, of varying values to, to, to a whole variety, a wide audience, and can be translated into so many parts of our business. And in, in, in we all are experienced in the aviation community, but we have so many different roles in aviation that people play. Aircrew pilots and flight attendants and mechanics and um, aviation attorneys and finance people and insurance people. We have leaders and we've got individual contributors and I think everybody can can benefit from this and the, and and there's lots of stories about you know you said early on about you know well you, you start doing the self-assessment and you start you know doubting what your decisions were and did I do the right thing and and we all as professionals kind of at least hopefully kind of do some self-reflection look in the mirror now and again and think about where we can improve and we can provide examples of um, of things that uh, maybe didn't go so well, not necessarily resulting in crashes or anything dramatic like that, but, but less positive experiences, um, less positive, less focus on customer service, less focus on team orientation and, and working together collectively to get the job done. Um, but that can be negative training. You know, this, this had a great outcome in a very, very difficult circumstance. You were on the ground for six and a half hours. You know, there's stories of, of uh, delays um, in other places with other, um, in other travel experiences that far exceed six and a half hours, and they're not in Tehran. It just is, uh, I think, a great lesson for so many, and uh, really very much appreciate your time and your support, and uh, as I said, just a, uh, an honor and a privilege to speak with you. So well, thank, thank you. thank you, John. I guess I'd like to leave this with, with one comment. <clears throat> I remember from my Czech Airmen days on a... Uh, on the FAA proficiency check form, one of the last blocks was judgment. And I've, I've thought about that intently. I've come to the conclusion that 
Good judgment is consistent selection of the least risk alternative depending on your experience. As a pilot examiner, I always try to leave the applicant with, with those words. It's really important that when you're faced with a situation where you don't know what's gonna happen, you don't know the outcome, just use good judgment. Consistent selection of the least risk alternative, depending on your experience. And it'll carry you through every time. So I'd like to thank you both for having me. It's a real treat and a pleasure. It's fun to talk about this. This was probably the best kept secret uh, in the U.S. Had it not been for Natalie Holloway's um, unfortunate situation, this occurred on the same week. And this never hit the newspapers anywhere. But it was a true international incident, and uh, uh, it was interesting. It's like Rodney King said, you know, can't we all get along? Yeah. And, you know, looking at things like this and that particular light is really what carries you through in the end, if we can just get along. If we could all just get along. Yeah. Thank you very yeah. much. Thank you. I appreciate it. Parting words of wisdom. The lawyers of Lane Powell serve as trusted counsel, advocates, and advisors to clients who rely on us to resolve complex business, litigation, and regulatory challenges. We invite you to subscribe to periodic legal updates relevant to your business, written and published by lawyers from Lane Powell. To sign up, visit lanepowell.com forward slash subscribe and choose any topics that are relevant to your industry or business. Thank you for joining our discussion today.